Welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 16. We'll be discussing the Farscape episode, A Human Reaction. I'm Kay, here with my co-host Taz. Hey, let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of the human reaction. Pilot calls John up to command so that he can see a space anomaly that hasn't occurred since John first showed up. The wormhole has a perfect view of Earth, and John goes down the rabbit hole and finds himself locked up because of strict new entry procedures. When Aaron, Dargo, and Rigel show up, John learns just how badly humans can handle first contact. So the most unlikely of scenarios unfold here. John is the one who gets to go home first. In this episode, we get the trope of what would humans do if aliens showed up, and it's one of the central tropes of science fiction, how would we react, and what we see here is the story that we would expect to see play out. After John lands his module in Australia, the equivalent of the Australian government's black helicopters show up, trank him, and put him in quarantine, and then begins the interrogation. No one believes he is who he is, and they want to find out what's going on in the most aggressive way possible. But really, is that how you think that we would handle first contact? Because I think that when I first was initially watching it, and John even talks about it, so he lands, and immediately as he lands, the black helicopters show up, he's tranked, and my reaction was kind of like, really? Is this how, is this how humans would react to first contact? I think it's an interesting question. I think... I don't know. I mean, we can barely handle aliens who are like humans who just crossed the border, you know? I can see an extreme reaction happening by certain people, and I think it very much depends on who finds them first. John is very much an idealist, and he is the one whose memories are being called up to create this scenario. And so even though on the surface he's the one protesting, and the story we get is the narrative of John being the voice of reason amidst all of this chaos, there's like this narrative in the back of his head that is fueling all of this, of the worst of human impulses. And I think that, yeah, I think we would react badly to aliens. Hmm. I mean, I think you're right. It would definitely depend on who found them and whether or not anybody knew that they had been found. Because, you know, kind of the myth of Area 51 is that only the government really knew that we'd found aliens, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, if aliens are showing up on CBS News, (laughs) then that's going to be a different reaction than if they drop in the desert and nobody but the government knows they're there. But I think that this episode kind of teeters on two points because it turns out that obviously it's not a real Earth. It's a fiction created by these aliens so that they can see how humans might react to aliens. But at the same time, they're also testing how John personally would react. So it's kind of a weird balance, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, on the one hand, you have his subconscious that's telling them one thing, that the humans will lock up the aliens, they will kill them, they will dissect them, they will figure out what's going on, treating them like animals and not like sentient beings. And on the other, you have John, who has made friends with these aliens, who has become important enough to them that they come after him, and who will fight for them. And he's you know, do anything to help them out. I mean, at one point, he's talking with um, his father. We're just going to call Jack his father for most of this till the end. 
And Jack asks, would you die for them? He doesn't say directly yes, but he says, I gave them my word that he would help them. And I think that's that those two sides that you're seeing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is kind of the two distinct sides of, of John's personal reaction versus how John knows that people are. Mm-hmm. I still don't know that that's really... I still don't know that their first reaction, logically, to meeting aliens would be murdering and dissecting them. Just because the premise is that the reason they have these new procedures is that the wormhole that John opened when he was doing his first gate maneuver never closed. So now they have this looming threat hanging over Earth. So they've created all these like, you know, kind of brutal reentry procedures because they're concerned about an alien invasion or an alien force coming through, something like that. So I guess that the part that didn't make sense to me was if that's what you're afraid of, why would you murder the first aliens that come <laughs> through? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, here they have deniability, though, because Rigel is the one who dies in the scenario. And they say he had an allergic reaction to the Trank gun, which they would have probably, presumably, argued in the alien invasion of Hynerians that would come after Rigel. It's like it was out of our control and whatnot. So I think there is that, that facet of people that would see what they could get away with. I don't know. I think I'm way more cynical about people. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, given the, and I, I didn't really want to make this like too political, but given the current rhetoric we are hearing in the world about other, do you know what I mean? And you're right about mm-hmm. it being human others. I think it is yeah. very easy to kind of, to say that obviously they wouldn't, if aliens did make first contact, we probably would not treat them well. Right. And actually John kind of does wrestle with this issue because they brought him in to see Rigel's dissected corpse, and he immediately knows what happened. Mm-hmm. So when he and and Dargo and Aaron are talking about it, there's kind of this element to it of him wanting to believe people are good, but knowing in his gut that people aren't. Let's listen. No, I think they killed him. You know that those animals killed him. And then they cut him open. They said they were just trying to restart his heart. They were studying him. Like an animal. Like an alien. Which one of us do you think they'll kill next, Crichton? Dargo, it's not going to go down like that. Look, I know that you have no reason to trust me. You're right. I don't trust you. But you tell those humans that when they come for me, I'll kill them. Dargo, don't. We've tried it your way, and one of us is dead. Go. Aaron. You know, Crichton, peacekeepers wouldn't even kill their prisoners to study them. Dargo's right. Okay. I'm going to start with John on this on this quote. One of the things I think is going on with him is as much not just his belief that people can be good when responding to aliens, but also his denial that they're being bad about it, that they are being so aggressive and murdery and all the worst of humanity about it. I think there's an element of denial in it too. And also, I don't know, but this is kind of what I thought of. It's kind of like you know, when you're out and about and you end up in a position of defending a group you're affiliated with 
or something and one of the members of your group that you're with is just being completely embarrassing. I mean, it's not quite embarrassment here, but it's that same kind of trying to defend this this group that you really do care about and love. I mean, his family's here. He's grown up here. It's his planet. It's his home world and all the wonderful things that humans have done. And yet here they are behaving poorly to guests. And there's this covering factor, I guess. It's not covering embarrassment, but, but covering for them, which I think is also the position that John is in that came through to me, at least, in this scene. Yeah, because this, he's essentially spent, you know, 15 episodes up until this point. Seven months. Yeah, seven months. He spent seven months defending who... Wait, that can't be right. Seven months? But didn't Remember, it take them four months to, like, look for him in... Yeah, but the but the, you don't know how much time is between the other episodes. Yeah, but I mean, I'm just saying it seems like he's been out there longer than seven months. No, no, it's been seven months. Okay. Because he says everything is, like, seven months old, and that's one of his clues <laughs> no, that things are going wrong. No, yeah, I mean, I'm not arguing <laughs> that it hasn't been... That in the show believes it hasn't been seven months. I'm yeah. just saying that, that it seems like it's been longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's seven months. Okay. So four months of him actually, you know, being on Moya and three months being on the stupid planet with the, what are they called? The Aquarians. Yeah, Aquarians. I keep wanting to say Aquarian, like, <laughs> like age of Aquarius, like the, like, or like hey. Aquariums. <laughs> anyway, thanks Farscape. Glad you named things really hard to pronounce words. <laughs> Anyway, getting back to the quote, you're right. John is stuck in this situation where he spent seven months essentially defending humans and being like, even though you think I'm stupid, humans aren't stupid. And even when he's about to go back to Earth in his own pod, he's he's almost begging Aaron to come with him. You know, he's saying, come on, this is I'm going you. You could come with me. And Aaron has to be the one to say, hey, I'm not sure I'm going to have a place down there. And it turns out she's right. Yeah. Which for him. I mean, again, like, since this is being pulled from his subconscious, this reality, it can't be a surprise to him. But I think that he, I think he hopes that humans are better than he gives them credit for. Yeah, seeing the best of them as opposed to the worst. Mm -hmm. And also in this quote, it's kind of an inversion of what we've heard, of what we hear earlier in the episode. Because earlier in the episode, when the wormhole first opens and Pilot kind of calls him up, his goodbyes with everybody are really, they're really deep. Yeah, they're really touching. They're really touching. They're very sweet and thoughtful. And Zan tells him something along the lines of, remember that you have a piece of me inside you. Take care of it. You know, these are his friends. These are people that he has forged strong bonds with. Especially with Dargo, who I think there's been a real turning point in their relationship. I think this is the first time that Dargo calls John, John, like by his first name. Yeah. You know, and there's an actual camaraderie between the two of them. I have a question, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Does Chiana appear in this episode? She does. At the very beginning, it opens on John talking into his diary. And he says, it's very quiet out here. And as he's in the pause, Chiana and Zan walk by arguing because Chiana stole some of Zan's perfume or something, some of her special scented oil. And is lying about it and then says, oh, fine, I stole it. And that's (laughs) basically Chiana's appearance. She's also in command when he sees the wormhole. But that's kind of it. She's kind of sidelined. She and Zan are sidelined in this episode, which is fine. There's enough going on. They don't need everybody. Yeah, because this episode really is very John Aaron heavy, you know, and John Dargo heavy. Yeah, like we said, he had that very sweet goodbye with, or not sweet, they're men. (laughs) Men. (laughs) (laughs) But he had a very, he had a very 
um, touching goodbye with Dargo. And then when Dargo's confronting him here, he's treating John like John is the one personally keeping him captive. Right, that lack of trust between them. I don't trust you. Mm-hmm. Which is which is fair enough because because John is their only point of contact. He's the only one that can understand him. He's the one who's trying to take care of them, except he is as powerless as they are in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. which makes his position all that much harder. He wants to take care of them. He wants to make sure they're safe and not harmed, but he can't deliver on that promise. Yeah. And actually, there's a really neat scene that happens earlier because they've put John through the ringer of, you know, making sure he's John and they still don't really believe that he is John Crichton. So when Dargo, Aaron and Rigel come down, they put them in this cell and they have John talking to them through the glass. And for the first episode since, since episode one, we see what the others sound like to people that don't have translator microbes. And it's a very, very cool scene. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, here's the clip from it. So I just love how they sound there. You hear Rigel, he's speaking first, and then Aaron, she's got that kind of sound and didn't do it right but apparently Claudia Black actually made that sound so they put it in there yeah I mean correct me because you're you've a little more like Farscape fan knowledge than I do but isn't it that she literally knows how to talk backwards I don't know but 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 there was something they were going to record it backwards and then they ended up not doing it that way because she could do something cooler or maybe she did say it backwards yeah I'll have to listen to the DVD commentaries again Yeah, because that sound really was very cool. Yeah. And it also does show that even though we're used to them all speaking English, that these these creatures did come from cultures that speak different languages and they are very, very different. It just kind of reinforces that because you could see how if as humans you would be frightened by these creatures that don't speak English and that speak in these very different aggressive ways. And yet all seem to understand English. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very, it's a different balance of power because understanding your enemy, which is the advantage that the, the aliens would have versus the humans who would be disadvantaged by, by that, by lacking the common tongue. Yeah, because, I mean, the humans keep trying to have John prove that, you know, he can understand now every language on Earth because they keep bringing in, what was it, like <laughs> 16 guys or something? Yeah, 12 different yeah, we, languages. We see the last one, yeah. So... All of them are now down on Earth, um, except for Rigel, who's been murdered, brutally murdered. Mm-hmm. And then John begs his father to call in every chip he has. And this this goes back to John's relationship with his father, because we've talked about how it is a, it is a very complicated relationship, that John isn't the cowboy astronaut that his father was. He's the scientist. Even earlier in the episode, the way his father proved to himself that John was John was he said, well, what happened on your 10th birthday? And John was like, I, I have no idea, which is valid. I have no memory of my own 10th birthday. <laughs> Taz, do you? No. <laughs> I'm trying to remember where we lived when I was 10. Yeah, right? Like, I'm- Yeah, because I moved around <laughs> that age. Anyway. But so, and then he's like, you remember we lived in Annapolis? And, and then John is like, oh, yeah, you relate. Like, you always are. <laughs> It's kind of reinforces that relationship that he and his father have, which is not a strong one. But again, the episode opened on him doing an audio diary to his dad. I don't know that I would necessarily say they don't have a strong relationship. I would say they have a difficult relationship. But 
because his father has been one of his touchstones while he's out with that whole audio diary thing and he's opening on telling his dad what he misses and that he's found his first gray hair and this is what he's worried about. I mean, he's doing it as a letter. So I think he's still, his, his father is still very important to him and that they do have a strong relationship. It's just, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. Strong versus difficult versus important. All these words kind of mushed together, but... Yeah. Let's take a listen to that audio diary, because then we can kind of compare it with his relationship with his, you know, fictional father. It's late. No. It's space. I don't really know what time it is. It's, uh... I miss the sun. Days. Nights. Simple things. Anyway, I, I'm... I want to tell you about this thing. I'm uh, holding it right now. It's it's my first gray hair. Yeah, I wouldn't mention it. It's just uh, afraid it might be growing old out here. Yeah, and you can hear there that his letter to his fictional father really is about him him being able to confide in somebody in a way that he can't, he obviously can't confide with anybody else on Moya. Yeah, his letters to his real father. Yeah, I mean, the letters to his real father, obviously, the letter to his father is kind of, but it, it is kind of him, him being lonely and him reaching out to somebody that he has a, that he has a relationship with, his dad. Yeah, so when he can talk to about, about what it's like out there and how disconnected he feels. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that idea of disconnect because, he gets back to Earth, and he's still disconnected from it. He, he doesn't make the, those connections that he wants to make. There's no joyous homecoming. There's no parade. There's no, you know, hey, look at all the cool stuff we've learned. It's let's throw you in a prison. Let's murder your friends. Let's make you choose between these people you've come to grow and care about and everybody else. So he never, he never really gets what he wants out of returning home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so after Rigel has been dissected, John goes out to try and see what else he can do. And he begs his father to call in every chip he has to let people know what's going on, that, they're, that they've made first contact and that they're essentially murdering them. Right, because it's, it's officially not happening. Yeah. Like the aliens don't exist officially. I think that that kind of speaks towards John in his mind coming more to terms with his father than he than he did in the first episode we saw or even in the kind of in the beginning of this episode where John kind of started to have that same that same relationship with his father you know you were late like you always were yeah you know yeah. and then they kind of they're able to mend fences in a little a little bit yeah well also it's you know he says in the quote that we played I wouldn't mention it except you know it's like not something he would normally bug his dad about oh I got a gray hair he's kind of scary I'm getting old but here he is so clearly reaching out and he's not trying to be his old his own self and not being independent he's like very clearly I need your help in every kind of possible way you can get and I think you know I do think that would be difficult for for John who has so long been in his father's shadow we talked about that in premiere where he's he's trying to step out of his father's shadow yes he went and became an astronaut but he took a different path for it mm-hmm and here he is accepting, you know, all that help that he didn't want to have to ask for probably growing up or as an astronaut with his father's reputation and everything looming over him. 
Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that John got into the space program all on his own. Yeah. And I'm sure that, you know, he probably fought tooth and nail to make sure his father didn't call any of his old buddies. <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, I'm, I'm not the youngest of three. I know exactly what that feels like. <laughs> so her father comes back and essentially says that no one is interested. And that's when we have the Aaron and John break out of prison together. Yeah, let's kind of go back and talk about the two of them from the beginning. So John offering Aaron to come with him to Earth is, goes back to DNA Mad Scientist when she's like, I don't have any place to go. And John invites her and says, hey, I will take you back to my planet. And at the beginning, when John's saying goodbye, he still extends that offer to her. He says, do you want to come? And she's like, no, she, she can't do it. She's not ready for it. But she very clearly doesn't want him to go. She's very quiet. You know, she's one of the one who actually comes after John when things go weird out in, out in space near Moya when the Earth disappears through the wormhole. They no longer see it. And so she's actually the one who goes after John because she's worried about what's happening to him. Yeah. And I think it's very telling of the relationship as it evolves through this episode. Yeah. So after she and Dargo came after John, she and Dargo and Rigel came after John. There's that moment where after Rigel is dissected, where she also kind of looks at him and she's like, even peacekeepers wouldn't dissect their enemies, which um, show that's exactly <laughs> what Crace threatened to do. Okay, I have an in-universe explanation for that. We know that Aaron has a very positive view of the peacekeepers and what she sees as their role in the universe and what they do. They are keeping the peace. They are restoring order. They are helping people by and large. And they are a force for good in the universe, in the controlled space that they live in. Whereas we know there's a darker underbelly and Crace is part of that darker underbelly. And I'm sure there are reams of scientists that she never interacts with that would have no problem dissecting people for torture reasons or getting more information about the species to fight them or all those things. So that's Aaron's idealism coming out. And that's my explanation. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, okay, I'll give you that. Aaron does... Erin does kind of have like a sparkle in her eye when it comes to peacekeepers. But I'm just saying that in like canonically, Chris was like, you're an unknown species. You know what we do to unknown species? We take you apart. So I'm kind of like, OK, Erin, sure. But anyway, so she's she kind of goes from being against John. And that carries through when John has decided to come and rescue her or come and rescue. Because at that point, he thinks that she and Dargo are still together. But it turns out they've already taken Dargo to an unknown location and so he and Aaron break out and they have... Aaron breaks out on her own first. Good clarification. <laughs> Aaron breaks out on her own and John just happens to come around at the right moment. Then they go and confront Cobb, who is, up until this point, he's been kind of the, you know, glaring, silent military presence. Let's listen. What is she doing here? What did she say? She says she wants to shoot you, Cobb. Not enough it's a good idea or not, but I figure since you pushed us this far, it doesn't really matter, does it? Where's Dargo? They flew him to another base. He's gone, Crichton. You can't save him. Thank <laughs> you. 
your vault and what you're doing there, Cobb. You're wrong. You're not gonna shoot me, are you? All the big loud noises you heard were people hitting Cobb in the head with guns. <laughs> and at the beginning there, you also hear Aaron's natural language, uh, Sebation, I guess. Mm -hmm. I actually don't know the name of their language. Yeah, we can say Sebation. We'll call it Sebation. Yeah. yeah. What I really find interesting about this scene, this confrontation, so it's John and Cobb opposing each other, and then Aaron comes in the side with a gun to cover Cobb and make this threat real is how angry John is in this scene. And not just how angry he is, but how comfortable he is with the violence and the threat of violence that Aaron uses against him and actually hitting him in the head. And then John pulling a weapon, a pistol, and pointing it point blank at Cobb. That's when he says, are you going to shoot me? And you can see it in John's face. Like, he could do it. At this point, I think he could do it. He doesn't do it. He still knocks him over the head. But he is approaching that point where I think... You know, we've talked about John and his comfort with, with death and killing and all that, and he's not. But he's getting really close here just because of how wrong this whole situation is going. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think he still doesn't, though. No, I don't think... Yeah, I think the punchline is that even though he's inching closer and closer towards that line, he still is of the camp of, let's knock him out, even though now he knows we've escaped. And when he wakes up, he can give everybody a pretty good description of what we look like and right. what weapons we have and where we're going, you know, like... He still doesn't. Yeah, he still doesn't, exactly. But he's getting ever closer to yeah. that point. And it's interesting that the, the species and the villains he gets really close to it with are humans. Because, or humans yeah, or and we've kind of discussed about him essentially, it, it being kind of like one of those things where your in-group is doing something wrong and you're being forced to kind of explain it and you're being forced to defend it. And here he's kind of finally realizing that humans aren't his in-group anymore. That his in-group is the crew of Moya. Yeah. There's an earlier quote that we didn't play, but I think I might like to play it, is that when he reaches the decision of, I am not aligned to humanity anymore, I'm aligned to my friends on Moya. And that's right after Rigel has been dissected, when he goes to confront Wilson, who is kind of the evil villain in charge, the evil bureaucrat in charge of... Bureaucrat's a good way to put yeah, it. Yeah, in charge of the system. We spent our lives waiting for this moment. We sent Voyager, we left damn greeting cards on the moon, and as soon as they get here, look at what you're doing. They can help us. Just take a step back, and you look at what you're doing. You think about it. Don't worry, I've thought of everything, Commander. Yeah, and that moment of Wilson kind of saying, I've thought of everything, is also kind of the moment when I think John is first forced to think about everything. Like, John is really forced mm -hmm. to think, who am I aligned with? Why am I aligned with them? And also, I think that I've already thought of everything. It's such a closed-door phrase. Like, there's no arguing with it. Wilson has made up his mind about what's happening. He's thought of all the possibilities, quote-unquote, 
that he considers valid and he is okay with all those decisions that he's made and now there's no room for argument there's no room for negotiation he is going to do with these aliens what he will and john has no control over what happens next and i think that powerlessness is part of what propels him in addition to this being morally wrong for him Mm -hmm. because now there's no recourse for him to work within the system so now he must go outside of the system yeah and it does kind of draw back to who's in charge of this imaginary world how much are the aliens controlling it and how much is it actually just completely based on john's subconscious and actually that is a a big question i have with this episode because if the aliens are controlling it then some of the things that don't really make sense kind of end up making sense. Like kind of the really, really closed door attitude of there is no recourse. We are going to kill all your friends. And earlier, them even bringing John in to see Rigel. Yeah, like I feel like in a real world situation, if they were going to dissect him, they would never tell John. They would just say Rigel's sick. We're taking care of him. They would make it seem as positive as possible. But the fact that they bring John in speaks to me that the aliens who are engineering this whole situation have actually manipulated it so that John does go in to see, so that they can see John's reaction. I agree with you there. Yeah, and also even letting John out, I think that in the alternate universe where humanity was this paranoid over aliens, they never would have let him out, no matter who his dad was. They would have just kept him there forever his friends would have shown up they would have put them all in separate cells and nobody would have ever seen each other ever again right i don't know but if it is completely coming out of john's subconsciousness then maybe that does speak again to john's view of bureaucracy and his view of the military industrial complex Mm -hmm. yeah i don't have anything much to add there but i think it's also the the bureaucracy and military industrial complex are two things Maybe not the military, but at least bureaucracy is something that everybody interacts with on some level at some point. You go to the DMV, you go to your university administration, any of that, and you get those those attitudes and regulations and follow procedure or else kind of attitudes that go along with it. And I think that would definitely be pulled up out of his subconscious. Yeah. So we just heard John and Aaron breaking out of prison, and then they go on the most epic road trip of all John Aaron Shipper's dreams. (laughs) (laughs) To the safe house. house. Yes. And it's raining also. Fun fact, they were not expecting rain during the production, but then it ended up raining and so they had to change around what they what they were going to do with the episode for those scenes that they're outside on the exteriors. And then they ended up getting some really awesome stuff like Erin encountering rainfall for the first time. I mean, she grew up on a ship. She was never a ground troop on a planet that had rain. And here she gets to see rain for the first time. And yeah. It's super cute. Actually, that was one of my questions. Ike was kind of actually thinking maybe it was climate control that whatever planet she'd been on before had some form of climate control. That's possible. Or she's just been a fighter pilot. So she actually has never been down on a planet or hasn't been well I guess she must have been down on plants before she's familiar with them but anyway she never seen yeah. rain before so <laughs> John and Aaron in the safe house yes but before we get to the kissy face because that is awesome there's this really great moment between the two of them where they're sitting drinking beer and John apologizes to Aaron and I just want to play this quote sorry won't fool Everything. What's happened here? Getting you stuck on Moya. And if it wasn't for me, you'd still be the happy little peacekeeper dominating the lesser races. 
lot to blame you for, Croyne. Look at that. What? That's it. Earth. Minus the sunshine. You know, you were right. It's actually very beautiful. Were you scared to join me when I left Moya? Yes. So you have John apologizing to Aaron for everything that he's done to her life, inadvertently getting her kicked out of the peacekeepers, showing up on Earth where they're being hunted down and killed by the humans. Nothing is working out the way he wants. And there's this, this huge guilt that he has that he has brought her here, especially after I think he promised her that she would be accepted on his planet. I want to talk about Erin too because she's had this journey all season long so far where she's been progressively learning to accept and going through the stages of grief for her past life with the peacekeepers you know, angry about it with Jelena and saying it's a horrible thing to be exiled and you know, later on with Crace thinking about accepting his offer, even if it was just for a moment, about going back to the peacekeepers until the blood runs clear. But here, here is she's even further along that journey of accepting that her life will never be the same. You know, she says, I have a lot to blame you for, but that the tone she uses is so quiet and so it's like a fact, but not really the painful memory of it anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's kind of like when you when you tell a painful story over and over and over again, and then you realize at a certain point when you're telling somebody this painful story that it it's not really painful anymore. That even if yeah. you haven't explicitly forgiven or explicitly, you know, gotten over the situation, you kind of have. And I think that's where she is, where she's at a point where she's like, okay, this was a thing that happened and that life is gone. Right, and she's okay with it now, or at least a lot more okay with it than she has been in previous episodes. She's gone through that processing of her grief and mm -hmm. everything. And I just yeah. love that. I, I love the character development that we really see play out through this episode, just based on all the episodes that have come previously. Yeah. And it's, I think it is like a good building for their relationship. Because this is yeah. the, you know, they've done things together before. They've done a lot of things together before. But this is an episode that they are also explicitly into each other. Because in PK Tech Girl, John was into Jelena and Aaron was into John, but they weren't into each other at the same time. And then now they both are. I think that in between DNA Mad Scientist and now... Well, there was the Flax, too. Yeah, that's true. The Flax. They ended that episode very flirty with each other. They've kind of grown into each other. Yeah, yeah. And so here, the scene ends. Aaron tells John, they will have to kill me if they come for me. He says, I know. And then this very quiet tilting of his head to kiss her. And it's just this beautiful little little moment between the two of them that feels really natural and organic. And that has grown out of the relationship we've seen over the past several mm -hmm. episodes. Because when they were getting into it on the flax, like it was this desperation of like, we're going to die, might as well go out in style kind of thing. <laughs> And here it's kind of a, we might die tomorrow, but tonight we have what we might have had if we had more time, if that makes sense. Yeah. And also I think there's, there's an element of comfort to it because they are 
as far as I know, the only two people that they can trust on an entire planet that they are trapped mm-hmm. on. And so there's there's comfort in in having each mm-hmm. other too. And then they wake up and John is shirtless. So that begs the question, what do you think? Did they have sex? Yes or no? Oh, totally. Okay, that whole scene. Yes, because Aaron's up and he even says he wants to talk about it. So, of course, they had sex. Okay, just making sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, but I will add this because I want to bring this up just for fandom history. So the episode is, runs about 50 minutes because in Australia, that's how long they film television shows for because they have different ad times than we do in the United States. In the U.S., that was one of the scenes that was cut for time to make it 43 minutes long. And the entirety of fandom went through, what, six months to a year of did they, didn't they? Arguing about whether or not they did sleep together or not because as far as we had, we had the kiss and then it opened on the scene afterwards that was Aaron in the dress. So you didn't have that John lying in bed shirtless moment where it seems like a lot more confirmation. You know what? I think maybe that's why I had the question in the first place was because the first time, <laughs> no, I'm serious, the first time I watched this, I do not remember the scene of her wearing John's shirt afterward, you know, and looking right, at the map. because that was cut from the U.S. broadcast. Huh. I guess I hadn't yeah. thought of that. If you read really old fanfic from, like, that was written the first season before the DVDs came out, there are people who are like, yeah, they just had a comforting night lying in each other's arms and nothing uh, happened. <laughs> Which is a valid interpretation if you don't have that morning after scene. But I think the morning after scene pretty definitively says that they slept okay. together. So... They put her in this, like, sundress because John's like, you'll fit in better. Uh, And I'm like, oh, my God, stop. I hate the sundress. Can I just say this is the thing that pisses me off the most about this episode, which otherwise I adore to pieces? It's such a thing that happens with the alien or the foreigner that you put them in the natural clothing and they are hyper-sexualized. And not, like, sexy-sexy, but or they are Mm hyper-gender-specific. You know, she's a woman. She has to go in a dress. But not just any dress. It's like... We keep calling it a sundress. It is not a sundress. It is like an evening <laughs> dress that is that is in like sundress colors. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because it hugs her hips all the way down to her knees. It's, yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah. don't get me wrong. Like, I, in my notes, I'm even like sundress. But I'm like, it's not like, it is not a sundress. It is so stupid. And, <laughs> and I cannot believe that Erin Soon, of all people, let herself be put into this dress because it is non-functional for running, fighting, or doing anything <laughs> else she will need to do when the military police come after her. Exactly. And also, it does not fit with her personality at all. I'm sorry. She's way too utilitarian yeah, for that. Yeah, stupid sundress. Anyway, we hate the sundress. But so as she's standing there in the sundress, John's dad shows up and he and his dad kind of have this conversation where his dad's like... While Aaron's holding a gun on him. Yeah, while Aaron's holding a gun on him and his dad's essentially like, you know, nobody's going to help you. You're on your own. And Aaron has discovered that the Australian outback doesn't have a lot of people in it. So she suggests they go hide there. (laughs) Would she be in for surprise at the heat delirium? So then right as they're leaving, because she expects John's father to betray them. And she has said this many times... You can really clearly tell that she expects that they're going to walk through the door and there are just going to be soldiers there. And instead he doesn't. He gives them the keys to the car and he's like, but you're probably going to want to dump it pretty soon because, you know, they're going to be looking for both of us. And she turns around and she says something to him and we don't know what it is. He doesn't know what it is either, but he ends it, you know, after she finishes talking, he says, thank you, Aaron soon. And she gets really startled because I think he reminds her a lot of John in that moment. Yeah. 
And also maybe that he understood something from her tone that she meant to convey mm. that he understood. That's kind of what I get out of it, too. Like there's there's a moment of understanding between the two of them, despite the language barrier. Mm-hmm. It's a nice yeah. moment. So then they're walking through this like patio, which, again, I'm not sure why they are since they have a car. But the plot requires them to. Maybe they're walking to okay. the car. Yeah. Yeah. So they're walking through this like they're walking through this boardwalk and John recognizes the jogger from the beach. And then he begins to recognize everybody. Everyone. Yeah. And that's when he realizes that all the newspapers out in public and not within the military base, but out in public are all seven months out of date. He recognizes all the people as people he knows from the United States and his childhood and people he's dated and people he's dated brothers in a pool hall and everything. And that's when he figures out something's going wrong. And we get the first time, is this the first time that we have John really kind of losing it and making a scene? Like in this very manic way? Yes, I'm trying to think. The closest I could think of was maybe Old Black Magic, where he's finally had it with Crace and Maldus and he and Crace go at it. There's that same kind of attitude. But here is like yelling at complete strangers, even though they're not strangers because the whole memory thing. But there's this, it just feels like the beginning of characteristic of later seasons John Mm -hmm. just losing his cool about everything and making a scene that's giant and obnoxious and enraged and all his emotions out for everybody to see because things are going wrong and that's how he's dealing with Mm -hmm. it. I think you're right about it being the first time and yet we definitely see this kind of John more like the John that uses scene making as a defense mechanism. Yeah. Him using the drama to get something done. Because it's not like he's just making a scene because he's a drama, you know, because he's into drama. He's making the <laughs> scene because he he's realizing that something is wrong. And he's realizing that if he just keeps going along with the fantasy, nothing will get done. And then it's kind of only by making this big scene that he's going to cut through to the truth. Right. Especially since what's wrong is that things from his memory are being made reality around him. And that's a violation, you know? That's that's something fundamental about himself that should not be put out there like it has been for him to walk through like this. Mm-hmm. So th- the way he kind of cuts through everything is that he goes into this bar and there's a lot of good like kind of extra work here because there's like a couple that's shooting pool and like John's waving a gun around and the <laughs> guy kind of like pushes the girl behind him and John's like you're the guy I went to high school with I dated you you know and he opens the bathroom door and it looks normal and he realizes that every single place he has been to in the fantasy so far is somewhere he's already been like where they were holding him and the rest of Moya crew was in like a hangar that he had already been to when he was doing work with IASA and so he looks at the women's bathroom because he's like well I've never been in there (laughs) and he opens the door you know and that's when we really see that it is a, a fake world right so then he goes to talk to the people in charge of the fake world who are these alien creatures that one of them is disguised as his father and so fandom has called them as the ancients but we actually never learned their species name so we'll just call them the ancients for now for convenience and that comes from the fact that the species is looking for a new home world or at least a place where they can coexist with the current species and so they're running these tests with all sorts of species including john and humans to see if they could coexist on their world because they have their ancients, their ancestors, who foretold of a place that they could go to find to live. 
they're also on a quest for survival and they have no regrets or remorse or anything about putting John through this ringer, even though John is completely outraged that the fact that they, they went through his memories like mm-hmm. that. So the reveal comes and it's actually a really hilarious scene because this whole time it's been John versus Wilson. Like John was, you know, representing all the good that humanity can offer and Wilson was representing all the evil that humanity could offer. And so he goes back to the military base and he runs into Wilson and Wilson is kind of like, you know, you're a menace. I'm going to, you know, you're going to be locked up blah, 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 and I'm, I should shoot you. And John's like, yeah, we both know you're not going to shoot me. And he's like, I'm <laughs> going to talk to the man in charge. And we both know that isn't you. <laughs> and it's so yeah. hilarious. It's such a good cap <laughs> on their relationship. And then he goes to the warehouse, which is now empty, or the hangar, which is now empty. And his father is sitting there. They end up having that conversation and then John's like, well, show me what you really look like. So the dad like walks him into this back room and they do this reveal that's like a really weird camera work where it's like you're looking from below or like you're looking at a reflection and then (laughs) it's not their best work um, in terms of puppetry. It's okay, but it's, yeah, it's not their best. They've done better ones. Yeah, they've done much better ones. For some reason, all of the hanging kind of chrysalis things reminded me a lot of Independence Day for some reason. Yeah, well, just the have hanging it over your head kind of thing. So then um, the episode kind of ends with them being like, well, Earth isn't a good place for us. Bye. (laughs) And then it just literally ends. Like, John opens the door and there's like nothing there and it kind of ends and so one of my questions was like well how do they get back to Moya? So this was a thought I had and I think they are definitely within a wormhole. I think that is still true based on what we know from season four and I think they're in one of those created spaces that like Einstein creates. Mm. Einstein the character who you haven't met yet. Sorry spoilers. It's not his real name but yeah but one of those kind of manufactured spaces because we know the species can manipulate them. My wondering is why they didn't just make a wormhole to take poor John home? Because they're not nice aliens. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question, actually. Or, you know, I mean, like... Because there would be no show. Yeah. That's why. I mean, yeah, because then there wouldn't be a show. But they're kind of like, oh, you know, we only have the power to make one wormhole. Or we only have the power to, to travel one. But then clearly they have enough power to make this, like, yeah. incredibly detailed world. And I'm like, you don't have the power just to make, like, a tiny wormhole to take him home? Like, I don't know. I found that. I was yeah. kind of like, Ugh, jerk. <laughs> That's basically what it is. They're jerk aliens. Oh, man. So I bring this up because it's going to come back later, much later. But the conversation that John has to identify himself to his father when his father comes storming in near the beginning of the episode is the fishing trip and testing him to see whether he actually remembers which type of fish he caught. Was it a trout or was it a bass? So I'm just going to put that out there with a pin in it. So if you haven't seen the episodes before, the series before, just pay attention to that note. If you have, you can giggle with me in the background about how cool it is when it comes back. Yeah, that was that was the one thing I want to make sure I brought yeah. up. So in White Shirt Watch, he's wearing his flight suit during entry to Earth. And then afterwards, he's wearing a dark gray shirt. And then he has a new white tank top when they're in the safe house. <laughs> So here's my question. So he's obviously wearing clothes throughout this whole thing. Does he not get to keep the clothes that they manufactured for him when he goes back to Moya? Oh God, right. That would be hilarious if he appears on Moya like naked. <laughs> or or wearing jeans because he got jeans from this one weird experience. No. Because they made things physical. Yeah, but we never see the jeans again. 
we never see the jeans again or the blue sweatshirt. Well, yeah, that's a good point about the clothing because the ancient guy gives him back the Yuri Gargarin ring. Yeah. But like again, the episode ends so abruptly that we're not like, there's no like closing shot on Moya with like John holding his clothing naked or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only. Here's your Yuri Gargarin ring and your flight suit. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. So what would you rate this episode? I mean, I like this episode. It's not its not like a favorite favorite of mine, but it's also one of the ones that I remember most vividly for some reason. Because I was like, as we were watching it, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that and I remember that. I don't know, 3.5? Yeah, I give it a 4. So this episode, for the similar reasons, like it's not one that stands out to me as one of my favorites, but it's still a very important episode. It's a very solid episode overall. And I want to also mention that I think it's a turning point for the series Mm -hmm. because as we get to the end of season one, the things that we learn in this episode become super important. And I think you can make the argument that this is one of the major turning points of the show as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of kind of plot structures that grow out of this episode. Yeah. So, yeah, this is the the third of three episodes so far that have been about John questioning his own mind. You know, we had Back to Back to Back to the Future. We had that old Black Magic. And now we have this. But this one is kind of the most prototypical of the ones to come, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like those other two are kind of ones that we tend to forget because we don't like them very much. (laughs) (laughs) I also think that this one's the most personal Mm -hmm. Because it deals with his home planet, it deals with his father especially, and those are deeply, deeply personal to John. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree with that. And this episode, when we are going to look back to it, because this is an episode that we're probably going to circle back to and talk about often, it's, it's a pretty solid episode for what it is. Yeah. It's also fun to do a human goes home and becomes an alien on his own planet episode in the first season. I mean, I think that's one reason this is a good episode is because it is that confrontation it's a very classic science fiction trope in the science fiction story and the prodigal hero returning home and i think that kind of story just hits all sorts of buttons for people who love science Mm -hmm. fiction yeah i agree all right well next week we're going to be looking at through the looking glass Woohoo! i know right (laughs) i'm looking forward to it so if you liked the show you can find us on tumblr we're also on dream with and Simplecast. And if you enjoyed listening to us blather about our favorite show, then please give us a rating on iTunes. That's how other people can find us. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye.